This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, a Business Radio special presentation of Dollars and Change from the annual CEO Connection Mid-Market Convention in Philadelphia, where CEOs across a wide variety of industries have gathered to meet with peers and share information, access to resources, and insightful discussions of the issues pertinent to mid-market business leaders. Here are your hosts, Cheryl Kuhlman and Sandy Hunt. Welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Cheryl Kuhlman. And I'm Sandy Hunt. And we are here at the CEO Connection Mid-Market Conference. Regularly, we are usually on the show on Thursday from 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and then we replay throughout the week. And this is a, a we do these sort of on-site conferences every now and then, and they, they end up being kind of different than our usual setting. Usually we have four guests. This time we have eight guests. True. So it really is a kind of rapid-fire um, discussion with a lot of the attendees. Yeah, and it's, I think it's lots of fun when, you, when you're when you at these conferences. Everyone is so primed for innovative thinking. Everyone's so excited and energized. You can feel everyone in the rooms really got this sort of heightened sense of, you know, strategy and what are they doing with the work and they're yeah. talking to all these amazing peers. So it's a great time to have these conversations. Exactly. So let's let's dive right in. Our first guest is Jeffrey Kiesel, who's the president and CEO of Restaurant Technologies Incorporated. Welcome, Jeffrey. God, glad to be here, ladies. Excellent. Can you yeah. start by giving us a quick summary of what Restaurant Technologies is? Restaurant Technologies is a high-growth, private equity-backed company. And what we do is we automate the handling of cooking oil in restaurants. Mm-hmm. We have 40 distribution points covering 26,000 customers. And what we do is we put in uh, equipment that we connect to the fryer so we eliminate the packaging that's... Uh, that you usually get in big package oil. Uh, We also recycle the used cooking oil uh, into biodiesel. So we take away the worst job in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So if anybody's worked around the fryer, you have to take the oil, carry it through the back room, pour it into the fryer, 350 degrees. Typically, it's bouncing back up on you. And then it uh, creates a trail of slippery oil back to the end of the uh, restaurant. And when the used cooking oil is you know, spent, they call it. Uh, it's literally carried out in a bucket and poured into a dumpster in the back. When we put in our equipment, um, we use the Internet of Things technology yep. to tell us what type of oil is where, what customer, uh, how much oil they need. We have eight people that uh, dynamically route all of our trucks to the most efficient route, and we deliver the oil when customers need it. And when we deliver the oil, we take away the used cooking oil. And that's a big expense for companies. I, you know, I think very often these little points in the supply chain are not so known by the end consumer, but the cost of disposing of oil, the regulations, yep. the restrictions, that's a, that's a tough nut to crack. Yeah, that's right, Cheryl, especially if you're talking about a quick-serve restaurant or a casual dining restaurant. Those really are pennies businesses, and oil ends up being the most highly priced commodity that Is they that track right? in their food costs. So it, wow. can be, it can become 3 to 5% of the, their the, food costs. Even over you know, poultry, or you, you'd imagine these things are more expensive, yeah, it, but it's, wow. It's going to be in the top 12 things that wow. they buy. Excellent. And it's a, it's a hassle to deal with, and yeah. we've uh, we've automated for them. And so the part of what you said is the, you sort of have this really kind of complex technology for figuring out when they get the oil, delivering it to them, et cetera. And then you said you recycle it for biofuel? We do. So um, we have contracts with the largest oil refiners in the country, 
and they they buy our, our product. And it's good used cooking oil uh-huh. and uh, because it's not stored outside where it can get you know dirty w- water and that sort of thing. So it's high quality used cooking oil, which they like to run through their refinery. And if they don't use your business, how, what, do you, what, what do restaurants do with their oil? Well, there's uh, rendering companies mm-hmm. that put in, you know, literally it is a dumpster in the back. They have some other um, barrels, but at the end of the day, it's at the back of the restaurant, just waiting there. Excellent. And then it, <clears throat> it sounds like it becomes a much more expensive item to recycle that once it's been polluted and it's outside, it may or not may not be able to have this biofuel transformation? Well, they do, um, but because it has higher water content and maybe some other impurities into it, it's got to be refined first Mm. before it goes into the refiner. So there's some chemical additions and that sort of thing. Got it. Is there a way that you measure the social impact of of that? What metrics does one look to to say "This this is really effective? Well, we're pretty broad in what we, our social responsibility. So one, our business model is sustainable. Right. And with that, uh, we have how many pounds of cooking oil, that's how it's measured, uh, that helps refine so many gallons. We track that on our website. The other one is that uh, how much packaging uh, has been avoided. Ah, yes. And that's in the tens of millions of stuff annually. Yeah. To paint a picture for our listeners. What does it look like to package oil when it's not delivered through your company? What's that, you know, physical look, physically look like for the company? So this may be, you know, one of those silly things you learn during the day and may come up in a cocktail party on Friday, but how... Uh, <laughs> I had a cocktail party on Friday. <laughs> I need some conversation points. So how oil is packaged if you buy it through a food distributor, it's uh, is packaged in a 35-pound heavy plastic container and then around it, it is put into a heavy-duty cardboard box. Mm-hmm. The reason for that is obviously it's, it's got to be plastic. It's holding a liquid. It's in, why it's in a box is so that it can easily be packaged, Stacking stacked, yeah. and packed. That's right. And so then you just get rid of that. We do. And uh, what we do is we have 40 distribution points across the U.S., and we buy direct from the oil refiners, and they deliver to us in 40,000-pound tankers of oil. So we eliminate the packaging line, we eliminate the, the waste from that, and we get the oil fresher and we move it faster. And see, one of the things I, one of the things we love about the show is that we learn a lot of things about different businesses, but you realize how you're able to have an environmental impact to really make a difference by some of these tweaks in the supply chain. Yeah. Now, were these things, Jeff, that you set out to say, I want to create a business and I want it to have these social impact assets, or was this something you discovered along the way and said, hey, you know what, we can do these things? You know, it's, um, I did not uh, found or start the company. I came in uh, with uh, a private equity owner, and the initial, the, the founders uh, were just saying, how do we get this thing more efficient? Mm-hmm. And I think the more sustainability, the social responsibility came after that, you know, the sensitivity, you know, later in the 2000s. And so we really look at it as each, we are socially responsible and sustainable, but also we're less expensive. So not only we, we, we're simplifying the supply chain, taking out things that aren't needed, like the packaging, and then also, you know, just delivering the fresh oil and taking away the waste at the same time. Also, there's not another truck that goes out and gets that. So. Yep. And these are our favorite business models, truthfully, when, when you have those win-win scenarios that it's right. not a more expensive proposition 
to have a social impact angle, but this is both, you know, a, a clear benefit to their bottom line and a positive social impact. That's the, that's the combination we love because it means it's not going to go away in hard times. In right. 2008, people still bought oil. Right. Yeah, your social exactly. impact persisted. Exactly. Well, and then let's talk, though, about the, your company. Do you have any sort of um, initiatives that are involving your employees or the community? Because we know that a lot of businesses do their own supply chain, but then also like to think about how they can leverage their community relations. Mm-hmm. So when we think about, uh, you know, responsible leadership, what we just talked about is our business model, Mm -hmm. which takes away waste, streamlines things. Uh, We also have data that tells our customers how to use less oil, which seems counterintuitive that we sell the oil, but we teach them how to do less. And why is that? Well, it makes them more successful. If they're using less oil, then they have some more margin. Um, We also help them have a a higher quality product. They tell us how much food goes through the fryer when you have food-to-oil ratio, which matches what they should be doing. So that's good. And what are ways that companies use less oil? Is it like the cooking mechanisms or a time of cooking? Or Well, at the end of the day, we, it's an uh, Internet of Things. We, they know what they need to do. But without us monitoring it, mm-hmm. they won't know that until the end of the month. Ah, okay. So we'll, we'll send an alert if they are to filter the oil at the right time to make sure they're using the correct amount. Great. Oh, that's great. Yeah, you can only imagine the back, you know, when you, if you've ever worked in a restaurant, you see the, you know, what's happening in operations in the kitchen. Right. It's hard to catch those things, right? You're, you're it, going through a lot of busy, you know, days, yeah. a lot of moving parts. So those alerts, I'm sure, are incredibly correct. valuable. But when we think of social responsibility, it's much broader than that. Yeah. Uh, we are heavily involved in the community. Uh, we have an RTI CARES community where we're highly involved not in all 41 of our locations, our headquarters in Minneapolis, as well as our 40 depots. Um, we, um, everything from uh, you know, giving backpacks in to helping our employees through you know, Irma and Harvey and Sandy and all that. I was just going to ask, yeah, how do you think about social impact when it comes to your employees? Because I think this is a great question for a lot of our guests today. Right. It's very... You know, it's almost the easier conversation to talk about the external community stuff, but social impact when you're at this level of leadership is very often, you know, shows up in how, how your people are treated, managed, you know, all the, those structures. So how do you think about it within your own walls? We have an RTI CARES committee, and anybody can petition that for a grant. Oh, great. Okay. And, you know, we supply the money from the company. We supply that to give out, and the, comp- the people make uh, decisions around that. We also have the RTI Educational F- Foundation. And that's a foundation we started uh, five years ago to help our employees pay for their sons and daughters' education. Oh, wow. that's a huge benefit. So we have, uh, I think, 24 students in college right now, and we, we help out uh, you know, $2,500 per year, and we just kind of raise the money to make sure it's, uh, we can keep building that. And do you see that having an, an impact on your HR, on your retention, and the loyalty and, and um, willingness to work from your employees? It sure does. I like to describe our um, company culture as a collegial meritocracy. You know, we're, we're in here to do well for our customers and do well for our, our investors and ourselves. But we do it in a way uh, that sometimes you can't tell if it's a revival meeting or a family reunion or, or a business meeting. <laughs> and uh, you know, we generally like each other, and that follows through to our high customer service ratings and engagement from our people. Sure. Yeah, it, absolutely. It's always great to see those things show up. What's next for Social Impact as we come to the last couple minutes here? So our next new product is uh, another one of those that uh, is good for our customers and uh, so it's sustainable, so we're going to automate the, the handling, I'm sorry, automate the cleaning of hoods, flues, 
and uh, in a restaurant. And so that's the number one cause for catastrophic fire. Wow. And how they do it right now, they use a lot of chemicals. We'll be using uh, pressure and a little bit of detergent, and we'll keep those hoods, flues, and fans clean 100% of the time. You need to come to my house. We're not retail. <laughs> so um, as a final question, and just a short one, what kind of advice do you give for mid-market companies trying to make sure that they're trying to do a social impact? Uh, I think you're, they have to define what they're trying to do. You, know, you may not have a uh, sustainable social impact business, but you can certainly get your employees involved in their communities. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. We were talking to Jeff Kiesel, who's president and CEO of Restaurant Technologies, Inc. This is Dollars and Change on Sirius XM 111. I'm Cheryl Kuhlman. And, and I'm Sandy Hunt. And we're here with Scott Jackson, who's CEO of Global Impact. Welcome to the show, Scott. Thank you very much, Cheryl and Sandy. Great. Well, I've had the pleasure of being on several panels with you, so I know what Global Impact does and some of the interesting things that you're starting to do. But why don't you tell the uh, the listeners what you do? Certainly. Well, Global Impact was formed 62 years ago to be in many ways uh, like the United Way, so to raise funds, especially for the international nonprofit sector, save, care, other international nonprofits that couldn't be in more traditional United Way programs, so we were formed as a workplace giving federation. But more broadly, our mission as a global nonprofit is to grow global philanthropy. And we do that in kind of three ways. One is we provide strategic advisory services to support corporations that are especially looking at expanding their CSR and their employee giving programs. And then secondly is we actually promote and manage campaigns, and they can range from traditional workplace giving. We manage the federal government's combined federal campaign, which is the largest campaign in the world. Uh, But we also are the campaign coordinator for Red Nose Day, which is doing something funny for money with NBC. So it can really take uh, a variety of uh, activities. And then finally, we provide, you know, key technology and finance platforms and tools to support those campaigns and to support CSR programs. And so what have you seen in terms of the growth and and interest in these kind of campaigns? Because I I know that... um, Sometimes United Way has had a, a challenge saying, what is our real value? You know, as people can go onto the Internet and decide what companies they want to, what, what charities they want to give money to, et cetera, United Way kind of felt, what role do we play? So what are you seeing in terms of global impact? Yeah, I think the role of intermediaries in fundraising and marketing and visibility for philanthropy has dramatically changed. And so, for example, federations like United Way and even Global Impact in our early renditions was about serving as a bank, receiving and distributing money. And that's really has gone away with technology. Mm -hmm. Technology is able to do exactly as you suggested, Cheryl, send the money directly. I think the role is now about helping nonprofits and companies get the kind of visibility that they're looking for and really the alignment between their business objectives and their social impact investments investments and interests. And, and the alignment point is one that I think resonates really well with us because we were always very much sort of saying the way that you make sustained social impact is not by having an add-on that is alien and, and almost random. What you want to find is something that aligns with your business, aligns with your goals, and can be embedded into the, the business line and or the corporate culture. So can you give me an example of somebody who does that really well that you work with? Absolutely. I mean, I think um, a, a large corporation that does it really well is Unilever. So if you go to the Unilever website, more often than not, you'll st- it starts with the 
global goals for sustainability as opposed to Unilever products. And, and that's a signal, right? It's a signal. And it's, it's about, you know, how does Unilever fit into the global framework? And then how do their products and people uh, fit into that framework? Um, and I think that that's what we're seeing more of. So uh, a company like Carlson Restaurants out of Minneapolis, uh, they, they have a traditional United Way program, one of the largest in the country. But they also have formed a signature program around anti-trafficking. And there, the, the employees as well as the founders really believe in that issue. They're trained on that issue. And they now raise twice as much money for that fund, for the anti-trafficking fund, than they do for all the other international charities in their, in their campaign. Oh, okay. So that's one case where they've really turned on that as a North Star and directed people towards it and really demonstrated commitment and importance. Absolutely. Scott, I'm curious, what are some things you've seen fall to the wayside? So 62 years is global impacts, right? History, obviously not not all, all your tenure there. Um, but tell us, you know, what things have become obsolete and are sort of an old school way of doing things? And what are some of the new innovative ways that you're seeing companies start to look at the social impact commitment? Yeah, I think uh, there's several trends uh, that we've seen emerge. Uh that weren't there even five years ago. One of those is that companies uh, like Jeff's company, uh, really they need to lead where they want to go. So whether it's their foundation on education or whether it's their grant program, um, you know, they have to find their way first. And I think the nonprofit community has to be willing to partner with them wherever they are at in that continuum. So that's one change we've seen is that uh, really it's it's no longer just asking companies for grants. They have to really think about as a nonprofit, can they partner? Can they partner with a company, especially mid-market? Yeah. And we have a guest coming up, uh, Anne Ward from Curio, who's going to talk an ease about a great way that they've done a partnership with Girl Scouts. So we should look forward to that. Yeah, excellent. And so any other trends? That was one that you said is a, a newer trend. Yes. Another one is that five years ago, um, philanthropy inside corporations, especially mid-market, was driven by leadership. Today, mm. I think it's being ah, driven by fascinating. volunteering and employee engagement. So we're seeing, and that's even true in Fortune 500s, mm-hmm. uh, so we're seeing volunteerism, including skill-based volunteerism, really drive the whole notion of what a company wants to be aligned with. Yep, excellent. And, th- and that is something we see with our students, this generation of the workforce, whether or not they're you know, going to work specifically for a social impact organization exclusively, they want to know how it's a part of the organization they're going to work for. So I'm not at all surprised to hear that. Is there anything that has completely uh, gone by the wayside? I think uh, the whole notion of transactional philanthropy. So so, you know, really asking donors, whether they're inside a company or not, to give to a charity either unrestricted or for a project and just kind of that transaction, that kind of philanthropy is really going away. That I think today now donors really need to know how are they going to be transformed, how are they going to uh, maximize their own social impact and that's where I think uh, business has a real role to play because they can support those donors in those journeys. Yeah, what's really interesting about that is I think you're you're right about the um, 
diminishment of the transactional approach, that people want to have something more integrated. But that also takes a lot more work. You know, you've got to figure out where the fit is, what you're going to do, what it's going to look like. And I think we are seeing at least some sense of corporations recognizing that and so being willing to commit to longer relationships rather than a just one-off. Mm-hmm. If it's a transaction, you might as well do it, and then maybe you can do something else next year. Sure. But if you're trying to build a relationship and co-create, it's, it's got to be something that you think has legs and you can stand into. Absolutely. We're seeing a lot more issue-based fundraising. So people want to come around an issue, women and girls or water and sanitation. And I think that will help, uh, you know, uh, bring a different level of, you know, being just one transaction, but being more about donating to an issue, donating to a cause. Yeah. yeah. I was going to ask, what advice do you have for the organizations that are seeking the partnership and collaboration with these companies? What does it look like to be a good partner who's, you know, looking to find, hey, you know, I do this work in this community. We've got a great mid-market, you know, company headquartered here. You know, what are some of the signature characteristics of a of a nonprofit or an impact organization that that positions themselves well and partners well? Yes, I think uh, there's two or three really key tenants. One is to be willing to co-design mm-hmm. uh, and learn where the company like Curio or others are really trying to head and right-size the opportunity based on that co-design. Uh, secondly is to be open to uh, volunteerism because it will be important in some form to the company. And it may not be a form that's a threat to the NGO uh, or to their programs, uh, but there's, there's a, a need, I think, to be open to volunteerism. And then finally, I think that you really have to be willing to look at a long-term relationship because the funding may evolve over time. Yeah, and that's and I think that's part of the question of where the the um, where in the company is the philanthropy? How integrated is that into the business line? And is it something that gets threatened when profits go down quite a bit? So I mean, that's always a, that's always a risk, and I think that's hard that way. Yes. Scott, are you seeing the uh, to Cheryl's point, the ownership or leadership around social impact? in the same place in the C-suite or, you know, we used to historically see a lot of the marketing department, you know, it would sort of be that volunteerism, maybe out of human resources as an employee engagement thing. Where is social impact sitting now in these C-suites? Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, We're seeing more and more companies, uh, both Fortune 500 and mid-market, actually integrate their philanthropy across their business units. Uh, So, for example, Gap, has downsized their CSR staff, even though they've they've increased significantly their CSR programs, and they've put those officers uh, almost as ambassadors inside the business lines. Mm-hmm. And so they really operate in kind of an integrated team model, and we're seeing more of that kind of structure. Yeah. So it's not just coming from the, the top. It sounds That's less right. transactional all around, seems right. to yeah. be the sort of evolution of the space less transactional from partner to company company into company etc exactly so um tell me about the grow fund that you guys have created because i think it's a very interesting additional model for what you're doing yes so the fastest growing segment of individual philanthropy and individuals in the united states still count for close to 80 percent of all philanthropy um, is really the, what's called the Donor Advice Fund. Mm-hmm. So it provides an opportunity with individuals to establish their own foundation and not have all of the reporting requirements. 
More often than not, donor advice funds are housed in large financial institutions or community foundations and require a minimum um, and then based on kind of a brokerage fee b- uh, model. So whether it's Schwab or Fidelity or Vanguard, there's often a $5,000, $25,000 minimum. So we really, Global Impact, wanted to be a part of uh, the, the movement to democratize philanthropy, to bring the same tools to everybody uh, that are now available through the donor advice fund mechanism. So we've launched GrowFund, which is a no-minimum donor advice fund. Oh, wow. And so anybody can start with a dollar or less and have their own foundation. Uh, they can name their family members, their their um, employees. It could be a corporate uh, grow fund. It could be an individual grow fund. And they immediately get the tax deduction. But more importantly, their dollar can also be invested. And so they get that bridge between philanthropy and investment without large minimums. Um, we're really excited about it because I think it gives particularly uh, younger donors a chance to be strategic in their giving. Yeah, and it's certainly a trend that we see that sort of, um, you know, the millennials see themselves more as investors and impact investors than philanthropists, um, and they want to be making some of those strategic decisions and not just a transactional philanthropic gift. Yeah, and so I think that's really, uh, and the more w- ways we can have to help make that happen, mm-hmm. ease the transaction. I love it, and I love the no minimum thing. I think it's a really interesting way to get in. It wouldn't surprise me that those things would grow to be very yeah. large, but it's it's a great you know great opportunity for someone to say I can make a small bet, you know, get in, see what happens. Now, do you um, advise on the investments? We actually use a, a large scale investment company called Investnet that many community foundations also use, and they provide a whole array of investments. But what's exciting to us is that GrowFund can not only have traditional investment mutual fund options or money market, but can also have social impact funds or university endowment funds. So we're really excited about that kind of continuum of investment. And what do you think, what do you see now going forward for kind of philanthropy? So we've talked about it being less top-down, you talk more about employee engagement, we have different funding opportunities. What's the, tell me the future, what's the next thing? 30 seconds. <laughs> I think on an individual and a corporate level that we'll start to think about how we maximize our social impact in our lifetime or in our company's lifetime. And that will look very different. It'll look a lot like what kind of skill-based volunteering do we do, uh, and not the, kind of the traditional one-off volunteering. It'll look at what kind of philanthropy uh, are we willing to commit, but also look at business investments or even social impact investments by individuals. Oh, great. That sounds really exciting. Well, thank you. We've been with Scott Jackson, CEO of Global Impact. This is Dollars and Change from the CEO Connection Conference. We'll be right back. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.